Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly return for the salt of the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I, I do things at Freethink, but we're not going to get into that. We're just not in the mood. Matt Welch is here. He does things at, at Reason Magazine. I believe he's the editor at large or something, but it's a made-up position. It doesn't actually mean anything. He, just, he doesn't have responsibilities. <laughs> um, Michael Moynihan, he's at Vice News. I mean, I'm not even sure he has a formal position. He's some kind of journalist. Uh, occasionally does some news and things there, makes things, Sometimes. video stuff occasionally. But none of that is important today. We have a guest. Nothing's important. We're, we're just going to get right into it. Congressman Peter Meyer is joining us today. This is uh, not the greatest of occasions. Uh, we've had you on under kind of better circumstances before, but wanted to chat with you today because you made a little bit of news. <laughs> Thank you for joining us well, this evening. Thank you for joining us from apparently from Afghanistan or something. You're in front of like a map. What is happening? <laughs> it's like it's a Lawrence Ted, of Arabia. Ted Kaczynski bunker uh, there. It, I mean, it's my safe space. It's where I retreat oh, when I need to think or, or you know, or lose to crazy a, people. Also, no, like Yeah. Yeah. No. no. Look at that. It looks, like, it looks like all. It looks like where you're going to bomb is what it looks like. <laughs> the map. map of the city of Grand Rapids. So we will keep that bomb free. So I said, it <laughs> looks like a place you're going to bomb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man, what happened, Peter Meyer? What the I, fuck happened, man? I lost, I think is the short way of saying it, but, uh, yeah, uh, no, no. I mean, it was a, a, a pretty crazy, it was a pretty crazy, uh, thing. And a pretty crazy apparently, opponent. Apparently a district that still has a 75% favorable opinion to Donald Trump on Republican primary voters doesn't cotton too kindly to, uh, impeachers, uh, especially in the head to head. And then, mm. Uh, this is also a district that Biden won by nine points with the redistricting. And so the Democrats also did everything they could to try to uh, prevent the more electable candidate from going in. So it was uh, it was fun. There was some drama. Uh, David Axelrod was backing me up, which was a very weird dynamic and not on my bingo card. Uh, but I also need to tell you guys how I got introduced to this podcast in the first place, because it might serve as a... Uh, reminder for why elected oh. officials don't come on. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> okay. <first laughs> I don't think we need that reminder. I think we're pretty clear on that because they lose their primaries pretty quickly. Well, I mean, gosh, yeah. At least, at least this time. Tell us who you don't well, want in Congress well, and have them on. This was a this was a bit of a yeah. conspiracy. This is a different sort of situation. So we had to get to the bottom of this. But I, I want to hear the story. How, how did you find your way to us? Yeah. So it was the. Summer of 2019, and Justin Amash was not seeking or had left the Republican Party. Yeah. I'm running and then uh, won that, that primary. But the big variable, the big question mark is, is, you know, Justin was talking about running for president. He had the exploratory committee, but trying to figure out, is there a chance he might come back in and run as an independent or on the libertarian ticket for Congress? Well. Which is something I had to factor into the equation. It was a, a very, uh, you know, I, I felt like I was trying to read every cryptic financial, you know, disclosure or, or um, campaign report, uh, every text that went out or every tweet, I should say, to kind of figure that out. And he came on this podcast. And Camille, I, when you 
you joked about being his vice presidential candidate. <laughs> I didn't know that was a joke at the time until I got to understand the podcast a little bit better. And uh, you know, in fairness, Peter, I, we didn't know I'm it was not, a joke. I'm either. not really. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure I would describe that as a joke exactly. But but go on. I mean, it's more of a hint than, a, than anything else. But in in my search to try to understand and to decipher what clues were being laid down, uh, that was one of them. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So you, yeah. you just wanted to understand. And then Jake yeah. Siegel came on. So I you guys were good people. Yeah. Well, he is a good guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. so you you tuned in. You well, were just this, doing this some, some research or... and you discovered yeah. that this is one of the greatest podcasts in the world. And you've continued to come back and you've supported it with your monies. Um, which is again yeah, just a lot another, cheaper since you went to Substack, by the way. This is true. This is true. It's become it's become more uh, it's become more amazing and more valuable and a better value mm -hmm. for the American people. You know, you can fill That's in how that, we fight inflation. You can fill in that blank. There's no there's no upward limit. <laughs> That's Peter, true. Of that yeah. blank there. You can give more. Uh, yeah. You can okay. give more. And like if you were the, I, you know, the era. Yeah. I, I got some campaign debt channel. to pay off first. No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so go buy your uh, go buy the prosciutto at uh, the Grand Rapids uh, grocery store. It's overpriced these days, but you know well, maybe the DC and Peter maybe has the a DCCC <laughs> could help you with that uh, campaign debt. I hear that they're giving money to Republicans these days. That's, That's a thing that they do. So, yeah, yeah. So you so the weird thing. Explain this to us because I think a lot of people don't understand this. Is you apparently lost in a Republican primary to a Democrat um, because the Democrats were really excited about this guy. And they put in uh, money to help him uh, win. You wrote about this on uh, Barry Weiss's Substack. And according to Jonathan V. Last, somebody who I used to have a lot of respect for, he wrote a piece about this and about you for the Bulwark, which was really a nasty, nasty little piece. Um, and uh, he said you went whining, right? Isn't that what he said? Yeah. You went, uh, you went crying to Barry Weiss's Substack about how terrible the mean Democrats were for running ads, which accurately and negatively described his primarily primary opponent. Um, why is Jonathan Lass wrong, and uh, why are you not a whiner, Peter? You just whined and cried to Barry Weiss. <clears throat> well, I don't know who this man is. I've never met this man. Um, I, what is that? I wish him good luck. Good luck to this man. What does that mean? Um, <laughs> yes, yes. No, but yeah. Okay. Should we lay the groundwork on? on he used to be at the Weekly Standard, by the way. If you didn't, if you knew his, I know. his background, lay some ground. Was, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. one of those. Um, yeah. Jeez. No, um, I think that was anti-Semitic. <laughs> no, I mean the groundwork. So, so I mean the the way the Democrats have been handling this is they, and this has been both parties have done this from time to time. They try to get the less electable candidate um, through the primary. They kind of put their thumb on the scales with the you know, primary voters on the Democratic side or the Republican side uh, to try to smooth the pathway in a general election. If you think of Todd Akin um, back in 2014 and, and Claire McCaskill yes. kind of boosting him up, allowed Claire McCaskill to flip the Missouri Senate. Um, and so th the Democrats started to do this. I saw it for the first time among you know our group of 10 Republicans who voted to impeach, six of us running for reelection, four retired. Uh, David Valadeo out in California didn't have a Trump-endorsed challenger, but did have a very Trumpy challenger called Chris Matisse and the House Majority Pack, which is it's Nancy Pelosi's personal super pack. I mean, she directs it. This this is kind of her game. Um, ran ads that 
basically compared and contrasted David Valadeo, Chris Matisse going into the primary saying, David Valadeo, is he really a Republican? He voted to impeach pure MAGA, Trump-loving Republican Chris Matisse over here, right? So kind of that contrast, but using the impeachment vote, you know, as a negative. <clears throat> and, you know, we got some uh, articles written about how this was kind of a disgusting practice because um, in that district, uh, David Valadeo's, I think it went for Biden by like 12 points. Um, but what was interesting is that I had always expected the Democrats to try to do something similar in our seat because it went for Biden by nine points. And do you want the guy who's going to have crossover appeal, who is from the district, who has name recognition and a, a voting record that moderates and independents and, and maybe some crossover voters could feel attracted to, you know, or an unknown candidate uh, with the Trump endorsement, again, in a Biden plus nine district? Uh, and it's clear the DCCC uh, went in one direction. But the DCCC is literally their members' money, right? I mean, the, the dues that members pay uh, on our side is to the NRCC, on, on the other side to the DCCC. I mean, those are dollars that their members were fundraising. They kind of put it into the kitty, and then they expect it to come back to them to help them get reelected and back them up when they're up in a tough spot. Um, so it was a pretty delicious irony in, in D.C. last week when news of that broke. Uh, you know, my Democratic colleagues who are at risk of getting defeated in uh, November because they're in districts that Trump carried, and now the DCCC is frittering away their dollars, attacking, well, I guess it was a successful ploy, uh, but basically elevating and, and giving more name recognition to my you know, primary challenger, now the nominee, uh, spending more in one week on TV commercials, and, and this guy hadn't raised enough to get on TV, but spending more in one week on TV commercials that he had raised over the entire course of his campaign. Wow. Just to kind of put that in perspective. And, and to be to be um, to con contrast with the Valadejo in California, it wasn't it was uh, uh, it was against him. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like he was too Trumpy. He was too he was way too pretty for the beauty district, contest. So yeah. Was, I mean, it was. Well, yes. But right. it, I mean, kind of nice photos. Um, Donald Trump's handpicked candidate. He's mm -hmm. too conservative. He wants to secure the border. He likes conservative policies. I mean, it, I mean, you don't watch this commercial. I mean, maybe maybe Jonathan V. Last does. Like, if you got kind of TDS brain worms, or maybe you were conservative, and now, um, you know, anything like shy of Jeff Flake uh, or anything beyond Jeff Flake is is the end of the republic. Maybe I could see in that mm -hmm. distorted view, but nobody in their right mind, no Republican, looks at that and says, "That's not the guy I want to back." I mean, they look at that and say, "I like what I'm hearing." Well, yeah, what about that argument, grand, though? It's, oh, it's Grand Rapids, though. Sure, I'm whining. Sorry. Um, yeah. Where you know, Grand Rapids is a is a <laughs> interesting place. It's not super Trumpy necessarily. Um, it it supported Justin Amash until you tried to primary him. Um, so you know, maybe reflect on what you did, Peter, <laughs> um, back in the day. Um, but no, it's but it's a it's an interesting, different type of district than most districts around. Right. So like uh, that wouldn't necessarily be an automatic slam dunk, I don't think, for for a well, candidate. Would within a Republican primary, you know, West Michigan is unique in that it's only, like I said, 75 percent favorable to Donald Trump as opposed to 95 percent favorable. I mean, it's still That's Republican crazy. primary electorate. Fifty <clears> percent <throat> thought the election was stolen when we framed it as, um, you know, Donald Trump won and his victory was reversed, you know, not. 
something that like very clearly it was stolen like this mm -hmm. it was like like little bags of money with dollar signs on it walking out of the bank theft type of thing um you know in grand rapids 50 percent of republican voters think that well, it was republican stolen. likely Holy republican cow. primary voters i mean and that's the thing right we would probably have about a quarter million folks voting in a general election we had uh about a hundred four thousand who voted in our primary you know so we start to kind of winnow that down um and and again, that that's a those are moderate numbers, right? That that is a moderate Republican primary. So to you know, the Jonathan Last argument, which I've been seeing everywhere today, it's not just him. I don't want to just pick on him. It's just that his piece annoyed me more than anybody else's. Um, there is something to it, right? I mean, I mean, I think that it's the monocausal thing, which kind of bothers me, and you know, it can be both. But his argument is essentially don't don't blame the voters because they were presented with information that was true and that convinced them to come out and vote against you. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't really complain about it. It's just whether, regardless of who's you know, putting the money in <clears throat> to quote unquote, enlighten the voters to say, this guy's the crazy one and you should vote for him. They still wanted to vote for the crazy. Well, one. Of course. I mean, the bigger question and, and to me where the hypocrisy really lies is the fact that at the same time the Democrats are saying democracy dies in the darkness and, and this is an existential threat to the Republic, yeah. um, you know, they're subsidizing it, right? For like narrow partisan yeah. advantage. So again, I, I don't blame the voters who see that message and say, we want that guy. I blame the guys who are putting the money behind the message on the one hand and on the other, trying to say with that kind of smug sense of, of self-righteousness, you know, that they're on the side of light and that some things are beyond party and beyond partisan politics and then, you know, playing right into that or, or accelerating it, trying to heighten that contradiction. Um, you can either be just a purely partisan cynical actor, which sure, you know, or you can be high and mighty, but it's the, the hypocrisy of trying to be both at the same time. I mean, how, how confident are you that as someone who agrees with you, but, well, I want to ask how confident are you that this, that this made a material difference here? So I lost by about three and a half points, about 4,000 votes. Um, I mean, I could never know for sure, but, uh, the balance between absentee ballots and, or in kind of same day, uh, we were winning absentees like 65, 35, same day we lost 60, 40. Hmm. There were a lot of folks who had no idea who my opponent was until the DCCC started running ads, just saying who he was. And he wouldn't have been able to get up on TV without it. Now, I, again, I'm, I can't say that that would. So, Peter, are you saying this election was stolen? <laughs> you know, I, I'm saying there are things we need to look into. There were Seems to work for other people. Let's do it. <laughs> I, I conceded to my opponent. Uh, you know, um, no, it's it's just when Dinesh D'Souza is making a movie about this right now. <laughs> I, love it I think the I think the phrase is election interference. That is the phrase. Um, we've, mm -hmm. We're very familiar with that at yeah. this point. We can't quite call it foreign, but it's at least from outside of the, the borders of the state. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's 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 close. And that's frustrating if I'm if I'm you. Well, it is funny that when you think of things in the conversations we've had on this podcast, a lot about um, Stacey Abrams and what she said about her elections is that, you know, these are things that are, you know, acceptable, legal, et cetera. She's not claiming that people did anything illegal, except for certain times. She said, well, you know, they're, they're doing this, uh, the, you know, this is the shenanigan stuff. But you can't say that this uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, which is technically legal, but is throwing the election, is something that um, now all of a sudden we should engage in and is completely okay. 
It's a very strange thing to do. But. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, Sorry. it's. Um, I've just appreciated a lot of my Democratic my colleagues who sat back and said, um, you know, well, you know, Peter Meyer is exactly the type of Republican that we need in office. But and it's like, oh, that, that, that but is probably not leading anywhere good, you know, but we need to keep the majority, <laughs> but we what need to, mean? but, you know, he voted against X or Y. And, and I mean, it's the same thing you see with like Mark Elias going after Liz Cheney, right? You know, I, the messed up thing that I've seen among some of my colleagues is they come in and they say, I want to work across the aisle. I want to get some things done. You know, they take some risks, they take some flack from their own side. Um, and then they get zero credit or they get the same or even greater acrimony from the other. And they say, to hell with this. You know, one side is definitely going to hate me. I might as well ensure my own side doesn't at the same time. And just what that does to any semblance of having a functioning government, um, you know, I think puts us in a dark place. What do you say to the people who make the argument? And granted, you're in a kind of a difficult position right now, maybe to assess this with pure calmness. Um, but um, <clears throat> the democratic argument that you've seen, I've seen everywhere, um, besides just uh, vibrating with visceral hatred towards Barry Weiss, which I think is all <laughs> politics ultimately, um, which is, it's so strange. I, I, don't I whatever. Um, it's that, sure, whatever, he, <clears throat> he's fine, he's a good person, I, I guess. But he's a Republican, and when you're talking about Congress, the thing that matters most of all is not even individual decency. It's if Republicans take Congress, then they run all the committees, then they're going to do all the impeachments, they're going to do this, that, and the other. It actually is on, on balance. There's a moral argument for croaking Peter Meyer. What, what's your response to people who approach it that way? No, I mean, it, again, if, if partisanship and partisan balance is the only thing that matters, if the letter next to your name is the only thing that matters, I understand that argument. But also making the letter beside your name the only thing that matters gets us to the point where, you know, it is purely a numbers game rather than any element of persuasion or any semblance of, you know, maybe we should try to do things. And it, I... I was about to say the word bipartisan. I will say the word bipartisan. The word bipartisan can piss me off a lot of times. Um, <laughs> but if you want to have something signed into law that will be enduring, you know, you need to get consensus and buy-in from both sides. And I think the effort to try to at least, this is why I think the filibuster I fully support. Just going through that exercise of getting that buy-in makes it a lot harder to reverse that down the line and hopefully results in a better policy being put forward. And I think the challenge, and this is where I kind of push back on that pure partisanship argument, is if you just have these massive swings back and forth of control and, you know, one side has you know, unified control for a two to four year period, then the other side has unified control for a two to four year period, you're just going to have completely batshit policies in one direction or the other getting implemented that then get reversed. And we all have to suffer the consequences and the whiplash of, of the chaos it would create. So, you know... I, you know, will I vote for Kevin McCarthy, McCarthy for speaker? Yes, I would have. You know, is it preferable to have somebody, uh, and, and I'm not saying my primary challenger is this, but I will, you know, use an example of, would you rather have, you know, some like rabid anti-Semite, but they will vote for a Democrat, you know, or <laughs> a rabid anti-Semite who might vote? I'm well, not saying he is, no. but let me just use this example. But, but that, that kind of gets to a, a certain... You know you're lost. You can say whatever the fuck you want now, right? Yeah. Right. God damn America! Are you? <laughs> so I mean, is there? Uh, 
have you endorsed your opponent? Would you endorse your opponent in the general? Boy, see, I've been avoiding media for exactly this question. <laughs> um, and that's why I was like, you know what? I will break my, my vow of silence. We had a unity reception earlier. I went, you know, shook his hand, said nice things. Because you know, I think it's important to, you know, respect the fact that the voters... Because you're also a little anti-Semitic. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, respect the fact that the voters made a decision, right? It, it yeah. wasn't the one that I would have chosen. You know, yes. But, you know, I think it's it's the decent and honorable thing to do. Um, but, you know, I think it's, you know, the challenge, uh, you know, the challenge is there's, there's no points for not going all in on your side, right? You, yeah. if you, if you go only half in your side's like, what the fuck, how come you're only half in? And the yeah, other side yeah. would be like, you're half in, you're half in, even a step in is too far. Right. And then again, yeah. that's, I think what I am, am kind of disgusted by, by all of it is not like. Uh, and I was mentioning Mark Elias and Liz Cheney being like, oh, she did one courageous thing, but she still voted against our, you know, bullshit election thing that, you know, would have been ruled unconstitutional, but <laughs> we, we put it for up for a vote. She still uh, voted against Bill Pascrell's uh, oil price gouging bill, which would have probably forced companies to uh, illegally, uh, you know, price fix in order to prevent. I mean, it's just idiotic policies, but it gives that little... Well, this one thing about them may be nice, but let me just destroy any semblance of sympathy you might have for an individual um, and just view them purely by their partisan affiliation. And, and I. Well, you know, it's funny when you, yeah, you ask about Jonathan Last and who he was, I was, you know, explaining a little background. I think a lot of people expect that direction from people, you know, people who went kind of, you know, Republicans who went never, never Trump became Bill Kristol or Max Boot or people who are saying we sh you have to vote for Democrats. And when Liz Cheney, is not a Democrat. They're like, well, you know, this is completely baffling. Why is she not voting with us? And it's like, no, no, no. She's, you know, a, a Republican from maybe 20 years ago or somebody who just doesn't like this, this nonsense. But of course, you didn't answer the question, Peter. You will not uh, throw your weight behind him, will you? Because, I mean, to do so would effectively be to endorse some of the battier views. I mean, they seem to be a lot of them, too. And that contingent of the Republican Party, which is kind of, you know, undertaken a, a kind of hostile takeover of the Republican Party and, you know, says that a, an election was stolen based on faith, based on no evidence. And that's a bad place for a country to be. I mean, do you want to support a guy like that just because, in your own words, because there's an R next to it? No, I mean, and this is the this is the thing, right? I have, I mean, we had an attorney general uh, race uh, and the guy who's the, the nominee is just like, I mean, uh, I think one of his Republican um, opponents said even his skeletons have skeletons, and that is absolutely true. Um, <laughs> and I mean, this is somebody who was calling me, wanting a meeting, while at the same time on, on social media, you know, here's this rhino, we need to get rid of this rhino. I mean, just talking like absolute <laughs> shit. And then I hear he's telling people that I endorsed him. This is the, the attorney general nominee. And ah, just that semblance of like, <laughs> I. From a definitional standpoint, I don't believe you have a place in this party. We should expel you from this party. That is the essence of sort of the rhino purge mentality. Um, and, oh, by yeah. the way, now in the name of, of party loyalty, uh, we all need to come together because I won, right? Like that, knowing it would never be reciprocated. Now, I, I made a concessions call. I, I think that is important to to do, to be accurate. There's a lot of candidates in the state of Michigan who lost their Republican primaries who are um, shockingly alleging voter fraud or, or some other shenanigans took place at not conceding. <laughs> um, 
I wonder if they got that yeah. idea. But, but there's just a certain hypocrisy to, you know, uh, the if I win, the rules apply. If I lose, you know, we're, it's no longer Queensbury rules or whatever the hell Steve mm -hmm. Bannon said. Yeah, there's... But, like, you don't have to stay in politics, dude. You're, like, yeah. what, 34 or, or whatever <laughs> he's you are. Like, he's old like, old he's like a very young Ron Howard. Howard. <laughs> he's very, not young, very young. Fewer freckles. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, like, you kind of have a viable career doing nothing um, if that's what you want to do. So who cares about We need like, a producer, to be honest. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You have to apply. Though. I understand. I understand. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as long as I'm addressed by the honorable, <laughs> then I'm good. Yeah. But just to, let's just to just to push back this a little yeah. more. Like, just yes or no? You're going to endorse him? I, I don't have any plans to. I mean, I, I haven't endorsed anybody. Okay. But I. But it's just the. I mean, here, here's how messed up things are, right? I had somebody that definitely doesn't believe the election was stolen. Um, you know, prominent, mm -hmm. you know, individual in, in state Republican politics who turns around and, you know, after seeing people win on the message of the election was stolen, I had a conversation with him and it's like, well, you know, I'm glad that 2000 mules is getting, you know, people seem to be responding well to that. Maybe that'll help turn some people around and, and finally get them to support this, you know, kind of stop the steel attorney general nominee. I'm like, what the fuck? Like the, the sense of everything mm. being relative. <laughs> Right. And I think that's where I push back, getting back to the Jonathan V. Last and the Max Boots and, and like you didn't mention, but like the Jen Rubens of the world. Like it's one thing for you to oh, be yes. consistent in your belief. <laughs> no, Jen well. And like yeah. I didn't leave the Republican Party, the party left me. It's another thing to be like, huh, that's funny. Five years ago, you know, you were vehemently anti-abortion and now Roe versus Wade is the end of your world. And let's just like compare the record. Yeah. Right. It's a you're wearing a Palestinian scarf. <laughs> <laughs> After running for commentary for 40 years. Yeah, no, I know. It's very odd. No, but, but it just shows yeah. that there's, but, no, I mean, look, there's no core there, right? There's no beliefs. Everything is relative. It is, I say whatever I need to say to get by, whatever I think will serve me in that moment. And I think that... But do you want to be a part of that party? I mean, where where do you go at this point? I mean, is are you a homeless person politically because... You know, we do. We live in a two-party system. There's no other. We try, you know, desperately to have these uh, third parties, and they're always filled with complete lunatics and crazy people. So <laughs> when you're trying to escape the lunatics, you don't go to the Libertarian Party. They're just even crazier about different things. But where do you go? I mean, do you, like, this is a party that in the primaries right now, look, all of this may end in complete disaster in the general for Republicans, right? The, all these, you know, nutcases, this, you know, red wave might be, a blue wall that they hit, right? I mean, you look at what happens in Pennsylvania. I mean, Fetterman beating the crap out of uh, Dr. Oz, who's kind of disappeared and who seems to have no political principles or core anyway, but was supported by, by Donald Trump. And, you know, Arizona, the Arizona GOP has been taken over by complete lunatics. I mean, it's like full-on lunatics. Where are you now? I mean, if you're going to stay in politics... You know, you got to choose a side in this country, unfortunately. I mean, do you feel that you're going to have any support? I mean, you've got no support. No one came into the district for you this time. What are you going to do in the future? Uh, well, in the near future, take a couple of weeks off, find a place that is within either walking distance or directly on a beach walking distance or adjacent to a bar. Um, mm. And uh, mm -hmm. finally, take a little bit of a breather. Um, but, I mean, I, 
So you're going to come out here to East Ag, where I am. There's a lot of bars and beaches. <laughs> we don't do jack shit out here. We're, we're planning a film festival, a little film festival. You're invited to that. Yeah, you're invited to the film festival in which Camille brings a pristine copy of Song of the South. <laughs> you so if you think you back to the party, shouldn't mention maybe they'll, maybe that. They'll have you probably you shouldn't mention that. <laughs> You shouldn't mention that. You know, <laughs> no, I'm trying to get Republicans to come back in his district to be like, oh, he loves Song of the, Song of the South. Maybe the election he thinks was real, but, you know, he's got some pretty enlightened views on other things. Well, yeah, you have the Libertarian Party. You got the Dixiecrats. I mean, yeah, what's going to rise? Yeah, through? sure. Yeah, I, I got news oh. for you. I don't think the LP will have you. Um, it's, not, it's not Justin's no. LP. I think you want him to be on But, I mean, I... You know, as as we were as we were getting ready to talk today, I'm you know reading through some stories, and one of the things that I picked up had a quote from you about your vote for impeachment, um, and and I think it it really does kind of capture like your your ethos with respect to politics and what you're describing here with respect to like the the notion of kind of principle and and priorities and a philosophical core and, and your perspective on the vote that you cast to impeach the president of the United States, then president of the United States, Donald Trump was this vote is not a victory. It isn't a victory for my party. It isn't a, it isn't the victory the Democrats might think it is. I'm not sure it is a victory for our country. Um, and I, I mean, you know, that's one way to respond when you have to cast um, a, a vote on principle that you know is likely to be expensive for you personally, because it's very likely if you don't cast that vote, if you just sit that one out, um, you're probably in a different situation at the moment. Smooth sailing. Well, oh, a different situation politically. I mean, uh, yeah. um, definitely a, a much worse, or I should say a, a different, better situation politically, a different, worse situation just in terms of having any modicum of self-respect. Uh, I yeah. mean, it was like, and in Jonathan V. Last, um, in his article was like, said that I was complaining because I recognized it could be a suicidal vote. And it's like, well, duh, he should have, you know, why is he complaining? He knew that this might happen. I mean, my complaint was more <laughs> like, not, not that I might end. It's just kind of who's, who's fingers on the trigger. Right. And like, that's. But he also said that you ran away from the vote, right? I mean, that you, you knew it was suicidal, but you did it, and then you didn't address it later and tried to hide from it. I, I would love to see any, uh, any yeah, time I know that where means. I haven't fully confronted, you know, I, I didn't run my campaign on it. Um, I didn't run ads um, that were trying to debunk January 6th because airtime is expensive and our resources are limited. Um, and frankly, there were a lot of people who, like, listen, I didn't agree with that vote, but I like what you did over here. And I wasn't about to be like, no, 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 you need to agree with that vote. That the only way we are, you, I want you to vote for me is if you agree with that vote. Um, because that was the reality after the sixth. And what to me was the most like fucked up component of all of it was how many folks rationalized and or adopted. I mean, you won't, you could not imagine the number of doors I knocked on where someone said, or people came up and, and said, the police let them all in. Nobody was violent that day. Or if they were violent, it was BLM mm -hmm. and Antifa or is the FBI. By the way, Ray Epps. Where's Ray mm -hmm. Epps? How come mm -hmm. Ray Epps hasn't been arrested? Right. Yeah, yeah. I love that one. It's my favorite. Or, Poor Ray yeah. Epps. Or, you know, Donald Trump. No, no, he ordered the National Guard. It was all Nancy Pelosi's fault. No, I mean, some of these have a grain of truth. Like Trump did muse aloud. You're probably going to need 10,000 National Guard. And then just kind of moved on. It's like, was that an order? Well, no. Okay. Didn't really do anything. Not really a take charge kind of guy. 
Um, but in that whole, you know, I, I reckon bad quality for a president. <laughs> not, not the best. Um, kind of, kind of no, a take but yeah. you know, I. I think it's important to try to be that bridging factor. And I was hoping it would be important to show that you can cast a vote like that and survive. Now, I was willing to accept that it could be uh, a vote where survival was impossible, uh, but that doesn't mean, I think there's a value to showing that it can be survivable, right? Mm -hmm. And that to me is why mm -hmm. I was, you know, I wanted to win more for that. So I didn't become the political cautionary tale. And someone's like, hey man, if you're thinking of standing on principle, <laughs> Check your assumptions. Uh, just go along. Get along. But what does it show that it, you, that it wasn't survivable? I mean, what does that show? I mean, it shows that it's not survival. It shows that uh, we are, I mean, I, I'm not going to get too philosophical in terms of interpreting. I'm sure like a thousand think pieces might bloom. I already have uh, on the, the DCCC meddling. Um, and just that this marks some deep, dark turning rather than it was one race. A race where 50% of my district was brand new, a uh, race with a freshman going into redistricting who, you know, for the new parts of the district that hadn't been getting or seeing necessarily the, like, the good meat and potatoes, uh, the, well, yes, I disagreed with that, but I liked what he did over here, right? Like, that is the, that is why I don't want to over extrapolate my one situation and say, you know, my loss means the downfall of the Republic. Like, not at all. My, where where I kind of great, and this is where I push back on the, the Jonathan V. Last argument, is, you know, there's something that gets lost with every little ratchet of, unless you agree with me 100% or, or I cannot recognize any virtue if you are on the other side. Like the, the my side, right or, right or wrong, um, you know, there's can do no right. Um, I think that becomes a... That becomes a dangerous thing. And it'd be great if like we had, you know, we were talking about the, the, the red wave going up against the, the blue wall um, in November. It would be fantastic if the lesson that was taken away by either side was, man, we need to, you know, tighten things up in our own ship. We need to, to, to double, we need to like have some introspection and realize maybe why we didn't win here. But the lesson ends up becoming, you know, on the Republican side, it's like, well, you didn't, appeal too much to Trump and get his voters out. They stayed home and that's why you lost. Or on the Democratic side, it's like, well, you lost because you didn't firmly embrace the Green New Deal agenda and, and deliver the unrealizable promises that you had made to your most progressive constituencies, right? So it just becomes a doubling down, frankly, on the same thing that lost them, all the people in the middle who said, these people seem like they're fucking nuts, right? Doubling down on those same things because of arguments made by captured factions in the party who profit off of their expanded control, but don't necessarily profit on actually taking power. And if anything, like the, the squad on one side, uh, by the squad on the right as well, um, people who actively do not want to be in the majority, because if you're in the majority, you need to govern and make tough decisions and mm. not be an absolutist. But the absolutism it's how they got elected, it's how they got their prominence, and it's how they sustain themselves, whether from an attention standpoint or a financial standpoint or a political standpoint. You mentioned introspection. What's yours? What did you do wrong? I, I, there are certainly votes I could have cast, aside from the impeachment, um, that would have made my life easier, or I would have had to explain fewer things. Um, I think eventually my thought process was, 
Uh, I'm happy to explain anything. I'm happy to defend any vote on the substance. Um, but all too often, you know, it becomes, well, you know, once, once is an incident, you know, twice is, uh, is a, a trend and then like three times is a conspiracy or something. Uh, there's probably a better aphorism there that um, I'm butchering. Um, but, you know, I could have made my life a lot easier if I cast that vote, I didn't do any media, and then I stayed entirely with my party the entire time. Uh, hmm. Now, would I have made my general election easier if I voted the same way in a Biden plus nine to somebody in a Trump plus 40? Probably not. Um, and I think that's that's where you see, I think, some of the most interesting folks in politics on, on both sides of the aisle or, or some of my colleagues who know they're going to face competitive primaries, but also know they're going to face competitive generals um, and have to actually say, I need to be able to defend my vote in both directions, both what I voted for and what I voted against. Um, you know, looking back, I certainly could have, you know, I mean, we didn't get the new district lines until January, um, but maybe could have made more of an effort in some of those areas. But at the same time, uh, we had a great team and, and ran out there. So it's hard to Monday morning quarterback too much of it. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, each race is going to be unique and each race is going to be different. You did exactly what we t often talk about on this podcast. And I think what probably all three of us would uh, suspect you should have done, because I mean, what you describe as hiding is, you know, changing your kind of, or, or, or like burying some of your principles for the purpose of an election. And, how many times have you, as somebody who's on, on the Hill every day, and how many times have I been, you know, doing something, talking to people in, within the Republican Party, and you get that? Uh, There's a story about Tucker Carlson the other day uh, from somebody from uh, the New York Times who said, you know, the way he talks about Trump in private is rather different. I mean, I experienced this a million times, and it, it kind of makes my skin crawl every time. And I say, oh, well, I understand what you're doing, but it's kind of gross what you're doing, as you're trying to keep your job, but your job is also to kind of remain loyal to your principles and the things that you said uh, to get yourself elected in the first place and not need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows and just change on a dime. You know, the, unfortunately, the lesson from, from this one election, if, it, if there is a larger lesson to, to be taken from it, you know, they're all different. I mean, there are primary voters, et cetera is that to stay alive, if you have slightly heterodox views in, in the, the kind of heterodox from the, the Trump orthodoxy, you better be quiet about them, or you better not talk about them too much. Because, you know, I mean, this is, you know, the Jonathan last argument, I mean, he basically says, you know, you know and Peter's still blaming Democrats for things. He's like, well, you know, he is a Republican. And, and just because he voted for impeachment doesn't mean that he now has a different view, unlike you and sort of Jen Rubin, on um, tax policy or on welfare policy or something. And that actually gets to the, to the, the point. I mean, he's, all of these people have become Trumpian in that mm. sense, where you know, they've all, all these Republicans who don't really believe it have drifted towards Trump to actually make their lives a lot easier, which you didn't do. And all these people that have you know, taken up the anti-Trump mantle have known their lives are a lot easier if they're kind of, you know, appealing to Democratic readers or centrist readers or center-left readers. And I just don't understand, and we've talked about this on the show quite a bit, how it's always a personal mm. issue, right? I mean, David Brock went from, you know, destroying Anita Hill and writing, you know, calling her a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty to running Media Matters within a matter of six months. Like, how do you change on everything so quickly? 
is like that's unfortunately the poison in D.C. that is way beyond Donald Trump. It is the ideological poison, and those ideologies aren't, you know, solid. They shift depending on, you know, what, what the mood is in, in Washington. So, you know, it used to be Republicans cared about, you know, smaller government, lower taxes. I mean, does the Cato Institute or even AEI have any influence in D.C., or is it mostly, mostly heritage now? And what is heritage? They used to be, you know, the Reagan administration's house think tank of you know, supply side economics, and now they're Trumpy. Like, you can't trust any of these people. And it's unfortunate that when you actually say, well, these are my principles, I'm going to vote for that. I could have run away, but I didn't. And you lose. And it's like the America loses in a way. It's really depressing that that's actually the, the state of affairs. I think that's what the unfortunate lesson that, that I draw from this is that, you know, the easiest way to win is to not be honest. But, but there was a question like to flip that into a, like a, a micro. So go ahead. Well, no, I mean, just you, you mentioned the people who on the one hand will, will you know say completely different things in public versus in private. Uh, I mean, I've had folks like that wish Donald Trump died tomorrow who will go up on stage and just be saying loyalist things. I mean, saying he's the greatest thing that's ever happened to the party. We need to capture this energy, come off stage and be like, God, I hope he croaks. I'm like, whoa, like I don't even wish that. People in Congress. Yeah. Oh, oh people actually, name. that was a, a party official. Um, but, but I mean, <laughs> I mean if, if you took a secret ballot of, of members of Congress and say, do you want Trump to run in 2024, oh, um, man. I think maybe he gets 15 or 20%. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably you right. know, And I think that's... Because they know he lost the election. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I mean, I told you this. I mean, all but kind of five or so. Um, now, how many of those folks are willing to say that publicly or to their own voters? I mean, that is the, the, the contradiction. But it's really the same. And I, I appreciate you mentioning, like, that there is something Trumpian about the the anti-Trump. I mean, if you are in love or in hate with a single individual, you're still centering them in the middle of your your identity and your dialogue. And why do folks do, you know, how come people kind of gravitate towards kind of one poor or the other? I mean, you want, you don't want to be lonely. You want to have a class of people who have your back. Uh, in some cases, you want institutional support that won't exist if you're not towing one line or towing the other. I mean, Barry Weiss is probably a great example of like, why does she get so much hate? It's because the people who hate her, you know, might agree with her 80% of the time, but then that other 20% yeah. makes her a traitor to the cause. Mm. And what it, what that, cause she's not mad. Yeah, well, what yeah. that other 20% yeah. makes her is yeah. an actual human with thoughts, right? That doesn't just, mm. you know, go down the list and say, oh, nope, can't say that, can't say that, can't say that. What do I need to subordinate? And what things I actually believe can I talk about? I mean, it's a very exhausting way of living. Uh, but, I mean, I guess that's D.C. I mentioned uh, uh, Justin Amash earlier in a joking way, but I have two uh, questions. One is kind of joking, but uh, which is, when are you going on his podcast? Mm. Um, and then, uh, uh, two, do you have any reflections now uh, about your primarying him uh, three years ago and discovering the Fifth Column podcast, aside from... What a beautiful, joyous day of discovery that was. I, I think technically we were only in the same primary for less than 24 hours. Um, yeah, I think it, it had been, it was not a surprise that he had kind of talked about um, leaving the Republican Party or, or kind of doing something different. So, uh, you know, I, I, that was not, for folks who have been paying attention, was not necessarily a dramatic, you know, 
can't believe that happened uh, type of moment. Um, and yes, I will happily go on his podcast. I'll call in. I, I still don't fully understand that platform, but um, I it's it's novel. The call yeah. in thing, yeah. Audio quality seems like it could be don't better. Be pushing. <laughs> don't be pushing Peter to other well, podcasts. He should, he should be under contract, yeah, we'll, like a we'll hand MSNBC the booking. contributor we'll or the booking. You're not allowed to go anywhere. So else. I'm, I'm wondering. Oh. We we've talked a lot about about kind of the things that are are frustrating, but. I wonder if even even in this moment you can kind of reach in into the recesses of your memory um, and tell me what you'll remember most fondly about this particular uh, period of your life, this particular uh, endeavor. No, I, mean, I think the you can accomplish things as a member of Congress. I mean, especially if you find an area where not a lot of folks are paying attention and maybe it isn't going to get into you know, the partisan limelight on one side or the other, MSNBC is going to look at it and say pass, and Fox News is going to look at it and say snooze. You know, you can mm -hmm. do something in those spaces. Um, the The National Defense Authorization Act is currently with the uh, Senate, and, and we hope that my AUMF repeals for the 1957 AUMF, which was my bill with for the 92, which I co-authored. Yeah, thank you. It's good stuff. Like, I mean, no, that, that's one... No, I, yeah. I, re I referenced yeah. those last no, week. Yeah. I, I, those are positive steps in the right direction, and even a sense of Congress that any future AOMF should have a sunset provision. Right? I mean, there mm -hmm. are things you can do by just persistence and, and getting into the conversation, getting the right stakeholders on board, getting the committees aligned, um, maybe some kind of public pressure in a beneficial way. Um, you know, I look at some of the things that we've been able to accomplish around that, around toxic exposure related to burn pits and, and post 9-11 veterans. We'll have that bill signed into law on uh, early next week by the president. And uh, about a third of that bill is something I introduced back in April of 2021 with a Democratic colleague from, um, from Michigan, Alyssa Slotkin. Um, you know, you, but the, the challenge is actually getting something done means having there's a bit of a contrast where getting something accomplished and getting reelected are oftentimes at odds in terms of the resources you are required to expend in terms of um, what alliances you need to make uh, if you're working inside versus working outside. Um, you know, so I, I look, I will look back fondly and with great pride at what we were able to accomplish as an office. I think I should be on track to set a record as the freshman uh, in modern history as a freshman Republican getting the most bills signed into law. Um, and then also just wow. the conversations with colleagues where they were legitimately exploring an issue. I mean, oftentimes is where maybe there was some consequence to the vote, but not dramatic consequence. The Steve Bannon, um, contempt of Congress resolution, it was an interesting one. Um, the, uh, the recent, uh, gay marriage bill as well, where you read it like it's a full faith and credit clause of the constitution. This is totally legally sound and, and rational. Um, and, and then just having to see some of my colleagues who found no substantive disagreement with it, but then had to finally latch, you know, hang their hat on one excuse or another, why they didn't vote for it. Um, and flying to Afghanistan was fun too. Which you got a lot of shit yeah. for. But, um, the, you know, I mean, there's a part of it. It's like how much of it is, you know, yes, minister. If you have watched yes, minister, if you haven't, it is the greatest kind of show ever produced and, you know, uh, understanding how government works and, or how it doesn't work. I mean, it is really, really brilliant in that sense. But when I was with you on Capitol Hill, 
we we recorded something and while my crew was breaking down we were talking and I asked you if you liked the job like do you actually enjoy this and you rather shockingly said yes and it was like a, a pretty a pretty spirited yes um, that you enjoyed being a congressman which baffled me because it sounds so horrible to me but I never want to do anything for anybody I mean I want to put people in burn pits because everyone annoys me that's why i do a podcast that's the difference right but so what is it i mean how what is the feeling that you have now having to you know when you clear away all the politics and all the d triple c nonsense and all the silly articles written about it i mean at the end of the day you're laying your head on the pillow saying okay i'm going home I'm not going to be here doing this job anymore. I mean, what is that feeling like? So you're asking for a degree of introspection that I probably haven't arrived at in the past 18 hours since uh, the concession call. Well, but I will, the, I will work through it's, this. It's hour 19. In real time. Time um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, what I loved about, well, what I do love about being a member of Congress is I think it, there is a leadership component and you can do something with that, with the, the power and authority that's vested in you. Um, I, I also, in, in this, I guess, to my detriment, believe that that power and authority comes with obligations and responsibilities to be kind of a, a steward of that position. Um, and, you know, I think it, I've seen how you can make an impact. Um, I understand and, and understood going in some of those pitfalls and, and obviously some of those were realized. Um, you know, but I'm still planning those next steps, but still want to stay very impactful. And, and I'll be honest, one thing, uh, and I would love to get your guys' thoughts on this, but just the way in which our primaries are shaped and what those do, not just on the incumbent survival side of the house, but probably far more critically deciding or factoring into whether or not good people choose to run for office in the first place. Uh, I think the way that primary problem uh, cuts off a whole slew of folks um, who would otherwise offer tremendous value and service to the country, uh, but then just, you know, it, it, I mean, well, I'll put it this way. There are a lot of people who run for office, and it is very hard to tell whether or not they are just like clinically sociopaths or like maybe actually insane. Mm -hmm. It is like a super <laughs> fine line where, you know. No, and, and Would you care to tell us anyone who you've determined actually is yeah. insane? Paul Marjorie Taylor Green? Who else? Oh, I, man. I, I, what's that? Um, what's that? Is it the Johnson, the Johnson rule or the Goldwater rule? The Goldwater rule. Yes, I try to, yes, I try yes, to not yes. diagnose. Yes, that um, came. But you know what? That no, you can't escape that because the Goldwater rule was people who are in the profession yeah. <laughs> of uh, psychiatry can't actually diagnose without seeing the patient after they signed that letter saying he was insane. You, sir, are a member of Congress, and you get to work next to people who appear to most of America to be clinically insane. So. Up close, you seem to probably have a better position to, to okay. judge that. Just, I mean, the most, I, people, most people will only hear this. I mean, you could just like rub your left eye if she's totally crazy. And rub, <laughs> rub your right eye if she's yeah. completely the bad The key shit. to interviewing people, uh, Camille, is not giving them an out. You don't let so them just, have an out. You, you let them I, answer the question. You saw which eye he rubbed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you see... Was it the Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Green eye? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean... 
But no, I mean, look, it, it's an important yeah. thing, though, because, I mean, you're right about the primaries. When people talk about, you go to Europe, for instance, and you sit down at the dinner party, everyone's like, everyone in your fucking country is crazy. Everybody that you elect to Congress is crazy. And I'm like, you do understand we have a system that, that really biases itself towards the crazy. And then you have to go through this whole process of explaining how that works. And so, I mean, you see this up close. And I mean, this is not something that is unipartisan. I mean, this is a bipartisan thing that there's, I mean, one of the craziest people I've ever interviewed um, was not too long ago and was a Democrat. And I left thinking, good Lord, I, how is this person popular? And they turned out to be quite popular and, and remain quite popular. Well, but you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a lunatic institution to be in. Well, I mean, way. because what, how, like, how do you know somebody's not crazy, right? You, you, you interact with them, you have like verbal back and forth, mm -hmm. you see them going about their day and being able to tie their shoes and, and put, you know, uh, one, one leg in, in, in the pant and then the next leg in the pant and then kind of buckle it around their waist. Like you have those indicators and you're like, okay, this person seems to be a functioning normal human being. But for a lot of folks running for office, as long as they recite the right script and, and kind of know what to say, like everything else is a massive question mark, right? All you really mm -hmm. need to do are kind of hew to and have the right ability to navigate talking points and maybe think on your feet. Uh, but being able to do both of those is not in any way, shape or form uh, indicative or even reflective of like fuller mental faculties. And I mean, to your point, I, I know Democratic members were like, you, you just can't have a, a uh, when they like run out of like their, their talking points or their like immediate, like Twitter reaction mode kind of thing. Like, I mean, there's a bot like mm. quality someplace and you realize that somebody, they're like squad bot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, that'd be a great AI. Um, but squad yeah. bot. <laughs> and you realize like they're not act like there's no like thinking going on, right? It's just sort of like a mirror and, and things come in and then the, the right response is chosen and it's pushed back out. But it, it, it's not, they're not, there's no there there. It's, it's Rick Perry. I mean, you remember the Rick Perry moment. And it's if you follow conservative politics for a long time, the Rick Perry moment was actually Hi. perfect because it was. Hi, it gentlemen. Was, oh, I can't this is my wife, Hi, Gabriella. Nice oh my God, God. you're married. Yes. yes. Oh <laughs> God, that's you made Man, a huge you chose mistake. the right one over there, Congressman. Yeah. Wow. Good. That's a good woman right there. Look at that. Did you just call her in to save you? Like I can't, I'm about to ruin my career and tell people I'm crazy. <laughs> no, she was um, fixing the sink for me. Um, I, I said I had to. Uh, oh wow, I'm wow. handy I too. Wasn't successful. Good. Yeah. Oh, that's she's okay. A, she, she's a fifth column listener and a plumber. <laughs> In the Meyer household, everyone has multiple. I got a bump. <laughs> but I was saying in the Rick Perry moment, if you follow conservative politics, you know that line, right? You, you have to eliminate X number of departments. He had remembered the line, but he'd not remembered the substance of the people who had come up with that line many, many years ago. And he was like, Shit, I don't know. I know I'm just supposed to say that. Or AOC, when she was interviewed by my friend Margaret, uh, uh, Margaret Hoover mm. on, um, on her firing line show, and she was asked about you know, the occupied territories in Israel, and she just went blank. And she's like, no, that's what we say. That's our position. I don't know what the position means, but just give me a second. And you know, Margaret just spun her up in circles because Margaret's smart, and she wasn't, wasn't very smart about that. And yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing that's really distressing about this is when you get beyond the most basic talking points 
and even the really basic ones where you just say sort of freedom and things like that, and there is no there there. There's absolutely no substance. And then when they are pushed, they just start sounding crazy. I mean, truly crazy. I think we're in an especially crazy moment right now because rather than thinking that's a bad thing, they're playing towards a certain base by saying, like, let's just be as crazy as possible. This is a good thing, right? Well, I mean, and, and think of how Michael Avenatti was like the frickin' Democratic front runner for two months, you know, when he was saying the right oh things God. on TV. I mean, like how, like the superficiality there, it, slash the desperation, right? It's just like we're... The porn star lawyer. <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> he's in the federal pokey now, isn't he? Gosh, he's in yeah, he's yeah. some things. He's, he's, he's seen some highs. Yeah, some it highs made me think of Michael Cohen, too. Yeah. Yeah, highs and lows Jeez. for that. Yeah. Yeah, the Michael Cohen thing was amazing. He invited me on his podcast. I didn't get to the, the, the answer the email quick enough. But he's somebody who was plumping for Trump and defending everything he did. And then one day, the next day, he was calling my friend, leaving nasty messages while he was having lunch with Tom Arnold. Uh, trying to find the P-tape. I mean, it's <laughs> wild that these people actually exist. No. It... But isn't there like a structural, like a, a, a conclusion from that in the sim similar way we talk about like the structure of primaries is not the structure of Congress in a moment where with some exceptions, apparently, um, a lot of people don't do much mm -hmm. legislating, mm -hmm. right? It's like you're fundraising, you're getting in front of cameras, you're reacting to things professionally. Um, and then you're going to win your primary or whatever. Um, is there something structural to the way that Congress is right now that encourages that? And so therefore, like, what do you why would want somebody be in Congress? Like, that's what that's the system that we well, have. And, right and this is why I'm a big believer in like the way you because nobody believes Congress is, is functional or has a high approval or whatever, like just accepted that everybody thinks it's a, a dumpster fire. Um, but Part of that is because we don't, Congress can be a dumpster fire and we may see the consequences on the news or, you know, somebody's talking about who had what, you know, tweet against somebody else or you see something embarrassing, but there's no actual like tangible consequences that are visible in that moment of how Congress is a dumpster fire, right? I mean, your, your local, the federal government shuts down. You might not be able to visit a national park if you're a federal employee and you're non-essential, you might get furloughed. Apart from that, we don't really see the consequences of congressional fuck-ups and the way that you would <laughs> if your city government shuts down and can't pay its bills and then the police aren't out, right? Mm -hmm. Or like the fire department, you know, isn't able to respond to, 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 to crisis. And so I, in my mind, the structural reform there is you make it so that if Congress doesn't do its job, it's clear and there is a consequence for Congress not doing its job. You know, you, and then if Congress fails to, you vote the bums out who aren't doing their job. Right now, there is not only no difference in, in you can have the most highly functional, dedicated member or the most highly dysfunctional, just phoning it in member. And it could be very hard to tell the difference to the average voter or even to the non-average voter who's paying attention, right? You, you don't see that because uh, the one, like the, the, the competent individual is kind of subsidizing, you know, the incompetent ones as well, um, while the incompetent ones are the more likely to get reelected because they're focusing exclusively on maximizing their benefit in their primary, especially. Yeah. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but there's hope. Justice Gorsuch uh, will repeal the non-delegation or will get rid of the, uh, you know, re revive the non-delegation doctrine and we will more narrowly constrain the Commerce Clause and there'll be a better balance between the executive and legislative, between the states and the federal government, and then all will be well in the world. Um, you got to fix the plumbing in your house. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's so. probably not the right. Yeah, um, yeah that's probably the first. You got to go that first. But you sound like you want to go, you, that you're not going anywhere um, in the long term. I mean, do you expect that you're going to come back and run for Congress again or run for elected office in, in some capacity? Oh, uh, quite possibly. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've seen firsthand not just like the generalized dysfunction, but the very specific dysfunction that I think is uh, handicapping and, and sabotaging the Republican Party. And in, by and this was actually the, I mean, talk about cold comfort. Um, when, when like a, a cabinet member of the Biden administration or like a democratic Senator is like, Oh, we think it's really messed up with the D triple C is doing. We're rooting for you. It's like, appreciate it. But there's a degree to which a lot of Democrats were actually rooting, not because they cared about me per se, but because if the, if the civil war in the Republican party is lost, you know, and, and one side wins, that is only going to precipitate the democratic civil war that they will fall victim to. Because right now, That's right. you know, yeah. Donald Trump goes away. If Donald Trump is out of the picture, I mean, the Democrats will disintegrate the next moment into their own infighting. There's no cohesion in either party except for antipathy towards the other. And it's a lot easier on, uh, on the democratic side because of the role that Donald Trump plays. I mean, he's the, the glue holding together that fragile coalition. Uh, and if he dissolves, uh, I mean, it's, it's open season. So it's been, that's been an interesting thing to watch is just the degree to which folks are kind of waiting with bated breath to see what happens on, on the Republican side. But how messed up is that, that we don't have two parties that are saying, oh, we, yeah. this is our opportunity to, to, to strengthen and to grow and to be better because the other party is weak. And instead saying, oh man, the other party is weak. We can do whatever the hell we want. We can give in to our vices. We don't need to you know, have it be iron sharpening iron. It just is like two molds of jello pressing up against each other. <laughs> I don't know why that sounds have so any, sexy. Have any of your colleagues surprised you? In, you know, <laughs> yes. Have any of your colleagues surprised you in the past uh, 24 hours and uh, gave you a ring and say, well, that sucks. Uh, we're sorry to see you go. People who, you know, weren't, wasn't somebody that you expected that from. I, I, I have, um, I have seen that, and I think that's been Marla, maybe Marjorie not Taylor Green was probably one of them. Moynihan, you asshole, kind of make it <laughs> yeah, bad out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, she look. She's in a hard job trying to knock those Jew lasers out of the sky or <laughs> whatever. She's got all the backup she can get. It. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> those, those things get hot. Space lasers. They do. <laughs> she's playing in a Saudi golf tournament this weekend. She, you know, she's very busy. Wait, is she actually playing in that? <laughs> no, I wish. Uh, I didn't notice it's... It's unfortunately not the same name as my daughter. Um, it's like called the Leaved L.I.V. tournament. So, Wait, oh, anyway. That's the thing that Tiger um, was going to get like a billion dollars to play in? Yeah, when I read that, I was like, man, what a fucking idiot. I know, you take the money. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like people will forget about the Khashoggi thing, you know, two years from now when you're That's building right. your spaceship. That's right. No one cares. Give, give his family half the money. Give, <laughs> give his family half the money. $700 million. Is, yeah. <laughs> Literally, they be like, here's $750 million. You have to shoot <laughs> Peter Meyer. I'm like, dude, lost. It's fine. I'm like, okay, I'm not He's a good knows. guy. I'll aim for, I'll aim for, I'll aim for the soft. 
He's yeah. a good guy. <laughs> the soft, fleshy part of the butt. Yeah, he's not that good. As long as you deliver yeah, a yeah, stirring yeah. eulogy, right? I mean, how it wants up in the... Yeah. Oh, no. He will murder you and then give this most amazing yeah. eulogy about how you were... Yeah. Okay. You weren't the best. But you were in a Versace robe. He tried. Gold shades. Yeah. I'm going to be like that pastor who got robbed in Brooklyn with all the fucking jewels on. Like, Peter Maya, a man of influence. Drive away in the Maybach. <laughs> Holy Spirit. Oh man! Oh man! It's time to move. Get the fuck out of DC. Move to New York. Relax. Write a book. He has to live in DC. Yeah. He has to work in DC. Yeah. Yeah, but you live in I DC live right half here. the time. Been, this is the map <laughs> of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Wow. This is where my house is. A Baghdad? Is that what you're pointing yeah. to on the map? <laughs> it's, is that, it's, it's a, a Hakani safe house in uh, Shari Now, Kabul. <laughs> Which, by the way, can, can we talk one, you know, you are a member of Congress, you are a veteran, you care about these things. Are you shocked? This is a total, total shift um, in, in, in conversation. But are you shocked at the fact that Zawahiri is killed and it didn't even make the fucking front page? Whereas somebody, you know, like Matt and myself who remember 9-11 and remember the years of, you, like, you know, watching these old videos... <laughs> No, Peter doesn't. He was he was so was in middle school on 9/11. Come on. Exactly. 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 That's why the only reason I don't blame you for 9/11 is cuz you're in middle school. I have an alibi. Um, but you remember if you watched those videos when he's in the cage in Egypt and the first time he's arrested, he was like public enemy number 1. And good lord, I couldn't believe how little we paid attention to that. And and the fact that he's like you know, in his like pool deck in Kabul <laughs> after, you know, the, the Taliban said, you know what? We're not going to let anybody bad, you know, operate out of this country. We promise. We absolutely Trust promise. I mean, I'm, I'm okay. So this whole thing, unless the fact that like, uh, yes, on the media standpoint, people are like, who the hell is Zawahiri? What's Al Qaeda? That's like, yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. kind of a big deal. <laughs> like it, it, it informed a lot yeah, of the past two big. decades, you know, it was, uh, um, but I mean, but seriously, the fact that, and this is maybe, I'm probably like the only member of Congress who is still very actively invested, like in what's going on in Afghanistan and tracking kind of the leadership disputes yeah. and, um, and not even because of official information, just because of my, my, my circles. It blows my freaking mind, uh, that, um, that the Haqqanis, I mean, the Haqqanis were like the, the, uh, they were the 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 big bad scary. If there was a massive car bomb that went off, a sophisticated complex attack, the Hakanis were behind it. Like they were yeah. uh, incredibly impressive from a tactical and organizational standpoint. Uh, very highly skilled, highly trained members. Um, and the 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 two main factions in the Taliban in the Afghan government now uh, are, are the Hakanis. You know, were kind of more of the political faction than the Kandaharis, more from the south. Um, Quetta Shura versus the Peshawar Shura. And, and there's this really weird thing where everyone assumed the Kandaharis, the more old school uh, jihadis, that those were the guys, not, not jihadis, the old school Mujahideen dudes, that those would be the ones who would be hardliners, but maybe they want to make peace. And it's the Haqqanis that are going to be the terrorist element that's always sabotaging things. And then they take power and the Haqqanis are all of a sudden like the more pro-Western group who are reaching out to the yeah. U.S., which just blew everybody's minds. Um, but now... The it, and I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, there was like was Siraj Houdin Hakani's son and son-in-law may have been killed, may not have been killed. There was like a two or three day gap 
where nobody really talked about what happened. And then the Taliban were like, yeah, it might have been mm. a drone strike. Looks like it's leaking. And then, you know, Biden goes up and makes the announcement like the, the references to. I mean, I don't know what the backstory is there. I just know that a lot of things did not make a lot of sense for yeah. Um, yeah. either that was in the self-interest of the Haqqanis, you know, or in whether or not the U.S. and the Haqqanis or the U. Did somebody sell out one element of the Taliban, you know, to try to gain marginal advantage to the other? Um, it's all just very, very, very weird. But yes, people. Should know yeah, as our friend, so, uh, <laughs> as our friend, our friend Eli Lake said uh, uh, on a podcast that uh, I think he was on the commentary podcast, and Eli's a very good friend of ours and a friend of the podcast, and his podcast is great. You should listen to it. But he was on uh, today, so I listened, and uh, he made he made the point, which is a very good one, that after Bin Laden was killed when uh, John Brennan came out and said about 700 things that turned out not to be true. So, so it is, it's, we should you know, back up a little bit and then say, well, we'll see what, if it was the flying Ginsu knife and how it happened, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, no, a, a shocking development uh, that seems to not only not have shocked people, not, but not have interested them. And you, know, you as somebody who actually pays attention to foreign policy and went to Afghanistan, I mean, that's, that's got to be a thing that's going to bum you out in some ways because the domestic squabbles seem a lot more irritating than investing yourself in the, the, the stuff in Afghanistan and, and, you know, other foreign countries. No, well, and then you talk about what can I look back and be very proud on. I mean, there are people in the U S who would not be in the U S if I had not gotten them out of, of Afghanistan, um, or, or had kind of expedited mm. or, or got them into the, the right gate at the right time. Um, and then work to, to settle the paperwork. Um, but just on one last thing on the, on the Zawahiri front, uh, like it's just, it's, yeah, you can't really trust anything that's coming out very quickly. Um, I had a really intelligent point that would have contributed to moving this conversation along that has completely escaped me and I can't feel the buster back towards me. Yeah. Um, what's, what's in that drink? Uh, that, that, yeah. That's just a Campari soda. That's nothing too interesting. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's a low alcohol no. content. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's just a super, like the amount of folks who just view, you know, there are the good guys and the bad guys of the Afghan government. And then there's the Taliban. One's on the side of good, one's on the side of bad. Like, I mean, if you know what, uh, you know, some of the, you know, like Rashid Dostum, I mean, some of the senior Afghan officials, some of the stuff that they had done during the war, um, I mean, Dostum, the first vice president who had to flee the country because he was going to get arrested for, like, sodomizing a young prisoner in his custody. Um, that's maybe a little bit not safe for work and triggering. But, I mean, he had locked up a bunch of Taliban detainees in metal shipping containers and probably killed 5,000 of them by either, like, suffocation or, or kind of baking them to death. Um, like, there was war crimes for Taliban days. guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but this is the guy that yeah. then became the first vice president uh, under the, you know, that's probably one that I'm not going to report to the police, to be honest. <laughs> there were Taliban guys. Like, oh. I don't know. We thought there was a little slit in there that was offering letting air in, but uh, yeah. things things happen. Oh, oh, but it's yeah, it's a wild, it's a wild dynamic. But I, I do though. I have to say that I do really look forward to having the exact same conversation with John Gibbs, who is going to um, really have a lot to add to this. You, um, you think we can about, get him on? Uh, the Jews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can get him on. 
Why is no Camille? Why is no one talking about all of these people that have uh, have triumphed uh, that are are beating the white man? They, this is a, an attack on white supremacy. Because if you don't know, because no one's talking about it, John Gibbs is not a honky. Um, he is not a ginge. He is uh, he is a, a person I of color. Don't know, I don't and know. We should how celebrate the fact that I haven't heard him talk about that at all. I don't think he's smart enough to actually have that conversation, Camille. I've just seen a few. And maybe Herschel Walker is. Herschel but, Walker. But, <laughs> listen, Herschel Walker is geez, man, something else. He Jesus. How many kids does he have? Twenty-two yeah, kids. Not as good. Can you figure it out. Dude, he's the one who's like the the social media star. Like the uh, it's the, one like, of his kids. Gay yeah, it's Magasin? one of his kids. Yeah, during the yeah, election, yeah, yeah. it came out that he had like no, twenty-two like a, other kids, like a bunch of other kids from different moms, and yeah. This is, yeah. he was Herschel was putting it down. Herschel's a that's yeah, a crazy dude. Republican value. <laughs> kept getting like he was like, I don't have any illegitimate kids. What are you talking about? They're like, yeah, what about yeah, this one? No, it's he's like, I have one illegitimate kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah. having illegitimate yeah, like, children. What do you mean by illegitimate? Yeah. But no, but then they're. Yeah. I think the kid is legit. <laughs> he might be too legit. But but, but I mean, they're just kept. <laughs> it was quit. just like that's it. Full disclosure. And then it was like, oh, there's another. Okay, but that's the like. Yeah, like, I think but, it, yeah. I think I mean, it was like four. By the way, you are not 32 because you just referenced MC Hammer's comeback album, <laughs> Too Legit to Quit. That's because it's a classic and he still listens to it today. It is a classic, yeah. Hey, it was on the hey. oldie station. It's <laughs> really. Yeah. Good Lord. You're like a model lying on your IMDb page. This is. Well, Congressman, let, let me. Oh, please go. I'm, I'm not going to cut you off. I was going to well, let you yeah. go. But if yeah, you want to stick around, you can because we haven't even talked about the UFOs no. yet and you still have things to answer for with respect oh to that. I but still know the classified report. Oh well, you yeah, better, no, you better get to work. You got some time yet. What are you yeah. doing there? No, but what do you guys think I should do? Let me push this back on you. Uh, oh. Apart from being the producer, uh, assuming the application gets accepted. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll take a look. A, yeah, yeah. Associate, associate, associate producer. Let's not get too fancy. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, we're prioritizing finding more BIPOC people for the show. So you, maybe you can, you know, work yeah. it in. Mm -hmm. You know, some Native American ancestry I can record or something. The, yeah, yeah, the land acknowledgement intro. I can exactly. Take <laughs> I think there's a probably a reality show in this that we could mm. pitch. You know that that you know starts the first episode <clears throat> starts in your last day in Congress, and then I don't know you you could take a job at a deli counter. I mean you you got a bunch of those. You could probably <laughs> probably have a leg up on some of the other people. I'm sure you're, there's probably some difficulty finding workers at this point, and then we just shoot that. And then you'll be like giving over your boar's head, thinly sliced Swiss and being like, you know what's going on in Afghanistan? They're like, could you just please give me the cheese and like stop just for a second? Like, and then the manager comes over and he's like, Peter, we're going to have to let you go. <laughs> People are very upset about all this foreign policy conversation and the fact that you voted for impeachment yeah. and they don't want it. So, <laughs> so that, that's my suggestion. Just I get... But write a I book. I get canceled in every in like various domains, like very trivially. Yeah. We call it the cancellation of Peter, and it's just protesters follow me around. You know, he's a he's a, a butcher in name only, a bino. You know, <laughs> but there's what I'm happens actually, with Congress. You get, there's a million private sector jobs for you, right? Oh, They're all waiting for you to be a lobbyist or something like that. Oh, but he wants to, he wants to have an impact. Thank he's still you. idealistic. Thank you. Right? You have more of an impact than the lobbyists. You're the problem, Winnie. Uh, no, like truth, I'm, I'm almost Matt. I'm almost genuinely curious how idealism survives this mm. process for you 
um, and I'm I'm the senior uh, uh, member and the senior uh, uh, moment haver on this podcast um, <laughs> more often than not. Although, it was, in fairness, Peter had the biggest one so far uh, uh, so far on true, this podcast. True. But like politics with each passing day seems less reputable. Like it's not surprising that people are sociopaths or super stupid or opportunists there in the realm of politics to me at this point i you know it's the number of people that we meet that i meet that i think like that's that's like a normal smart person trying to do good things in politics it's a very small and kind of shrinking number and it makes me think that maybe that's not the greatest way to spend my attention span or for people to even get into the thing so it's actually kind of heartening if confusing to me that you still have some kind of taste for that and uh, clearly a desire to sort of stay somewhere around that um i honestly feel like uh you know the, the tiny sliver of a role that i play in the world which isn't much but like in in terms of politics is purely as a defense mechanism one way or the other like what 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 is this apparatus going to do to me or people who or kind of think like this. And so I try to analyze it from that point of view, but like the actual practice of it, and that includes political journalism, activism, whatever, right? Uh, comms and the actual serving political office. It's rare to me that that seems like a very reputable and good thing. So I would personally advise you to get the hell away from it, but I'm also intrigued that you still feel that sense of idealism about being near mm. it. Uh, I mean, but you, you kind of have to have some idealism because if you don't have that, you just forswear, you know, a multi-trillion dollar, you know, entity that holds the monopoly on violence in this country to the not idealistic, right? Hmm. You bring up an excellent point. Yeah. That's why Camille needs to run for... Not vice. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. If you're ready for it. I mean, Air Force One is the ultimate never fly. That's coast, true. That's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really. Yeah. I see the wheels yeah. turning. Either that or you're <laughs> no, stoned and you fell asleep. Just, I'm not I'm sure. Just thinking, I'm just thinking, thinking about, about, about what the congressman just said. <laughs> I'm, I'm contemplating it because I'm, I'm someone who I'm, I'm, op, I'm an optimist about many things. I think when it comes to kind of Congress, particularly like government, the national level, like I'm pretty damn pessimistic. I mean, my, my, stratagem most of the time is just to pray for like gridlock and to hope not too much gets done because I don't have an expectation that very much in the way of good things is going to happen. Um, I mean, one would hope that during, you know, a national emergency or a global emergency, like a, I don't know, a pandemic or something where you've got to get all your ducks in a row and really figure things out, you know, these, the people would rise to the occasion and they'd work in a bipartisan way to try and get things solved and, you know, so much for that. Um, you know, I, I think I think cultivating a little bit more skepticism about these institutions is probably a good thing. And I, I wish we could do that without it also in, involving this kind of worsening, deepening tribal conflict that makes people make a lot of, I think, very poor decisions. Um, so I'd like to see some of that tamp down and a little bit more sanity prevail. But 
I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just in terms of my own kind of political project and philosophical moorings that I just can't hope that there will be a lot of good outcomes, at least in terms of the, the sort of thing that I hope for. Um, but that said, I do, I am an optimist and I do think the institutions matter and I, I, I value at a minimum, like the, the kind of relative peace and stability that we have. And I, I hope that we can figure out how to, how to make things slightly more productive and how to, to ensure that people who are building great things in the private sector and people who are actually accomplishing things at the local level to improve their communities, that we can empower those folks. The local thing's interesting. I mean, <clears throat> the, about idealism, and I think Peter's right. If you, if you don't have that, then, then what do you have? I mean, what are you doing all this stuff for? But when you don't own something, you tend to go into something, whether it's a TV show or a podcast or a magazine, with an idea that you and this new young crew of young bucks is going to, to take over and do something great with it. Um, you know, this show has been languishing and we're going to just, I have all these great ideas. And then the institution mm -hmm. beats you down. And that's always the case. And so I, you know, to be less cynical, actually, I'm assuming that Congress is much like every other organization that I've been in, where people come in with all of these great ideas and they're crushed within a year and not by one, you know, individual or individual force or something. It's just the kind of greater force of the institution that has set itself. I mean, there's things that happen in the institution of Congress and there's things that happen in the institution of 60 Minutes, the TV show, that were set in the 1960s or the 1840s. Mm. And they just keep on going. And if you want to come in and try to challenge those things, you can only do that in a business that you own that you are the you know, CEO and you can actually make some executive call and kill every part of one department or one show or one part of, of the business that's not doing well. Whereas government, it's like, I, I know that a lot of those people, I know that, you remember the cover? Matt, you remember this. What, what was the, was it actually the Weekly Standard that had the Young Guns oh cover when it was like Paul Ryan? And who else was, was in that cover? The Young Guns. Eric Cantor and, and Kevin Eric Cantor, yeah. It was, it was actually Kevin, Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy. Young gun. Yeah, he was a young guy. He needed gun. a gun because he didn't have a brain. So yeah. You know, and that <laughs> thing was like, these guys are going to come in and, you know, uh, uh, Paul, Paul Ryan gives everybody Atlas Shrugged. And I was like, oh, I don't know if actually, that's a good idea. Maybe they should get actually should primary book. him. There's actually a book <laughs> that they co-authored. <laughs> Yeah, it's a book that they co-authored, but I think it's, it was, there was a magazine cover that maybe precipitated that. I don't remember yeah. where it came from. You know, it's a chicken and the egg thing. But those were the young guns, right? And those guys are now just the boring establishment that don't let that, that doesn't let Kevin McCarthy change. fully great. I don't actually gun. think that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and Trump broke Paul Ryan. Let's let's be honest about that. Like Trump, yeah. Trump singled him out. And I'm going to break you even harder than I break the House Freedom Caucus, and like just drive him away in political life. Did I tell you about when he when he ended the interview with me? Ever Paul Ryan? I don't think it ever aired. Yeah. You pumped an iron with him or something, or what happened? Yeah, we were we were boxing. It was uh, <laughs> it was at the local gym in the southeast. We went down there and just you know hit the bag around. Listen to some rage against the machine. No, I was in, it was in Statuary Hall in Congress, and I was I was um, we got an interview with him. Um, Right when Trump won the nomination and his press people were like, you cannot ask about Trump because we were going in to, to do something else. I don't remember what it was. And um, you can't talk. And I said, OK, that's strange. 
Um, but I'm going to do it anyway, obviously, <laughs> because fuck you. And so we went in there, and, um, and he, it was like about 15 minutes in, and I said, um, some, I didn't mention Trump. I said, you know, can you support uh, whatever Republican candidate? It was, it was before he won the, the nomination. And I said, like, can you support the Republican candidate? And he's like, he looked at me and grabbed his mic and started, on, and he's like, we told you, you cannot ask about... And I was like, look, motherfucker, you're the, you, you're the leader of this party. You can't answer a question if you would support the nominee. Are you joking? And he like, took it off and he ran off. And wow. And I was like, man, that's a good. We should use that. And then we never used it. So well, I don't know why. Oh, well, and you, no, just, you know yeah. what happened to Eric Cantor? Uh, well, not recently. Oh. Or, I remember what happened to well, him. Got, yeah, he yeah, got, I mean, got primaried. Primaried right? from the, yeah. the hard right and then the seat flipped to a, a, a Democrat. Yeah, yeah. Tough. I wonder what he's doing now. <laughs> Lessons learned. <laughs> oh, but I, I think he's, yeah. I he's, he's at like an investment firm right now making bank. But, uh, See? But no. See? Yeah. See? Nothing <laughs> wrong with that. <laughs> Any investment bank want to reach out to Peter? We'll forward the application. Yeah, we'll, we'll bro- we, we can broker that deal for you, too. Yeah, we can broker that deal. I'll be your headhunter. Just the finder's fee, right? Yeah. Just, just a little yeah, exactly. Just a little you can You can tell people what, like, Hakani to back in the next... Uh... Jalal Adin. Money's on him. But... <laughs> For those of you who don't know, it, the, the Hakani is on a boy band. Like a famous yeah. Afghan boy yeah. band. Like the... Not yet. Okay. No. no. There is... They probably molest... You said they're about to There was an up. Afghan... There was a version of, um, you know, God... Afghan star. It was a version of like America's Got Talent, but set in Afghanistan. Oh, oh my god! Was it. it was actually, so many jokes yeah. that I can't. No, make. It was good. <laughs> Just leave it alone. There was a guy. There was a guy who sang incredible songs in in um, uh, in Farsi, and he sorry, uh, uh, no sorry, he's a Pashtun a Pashtun singer, uh, but Pashtun. he was from Indonesia and didn't speak a word of Pashtun. But for whatever reason, he could just like phonetically do it and they loved it and it was a whole thing for i think i spent new year's eve 2014 with that guy uh cobbled that with race. that guy yeah. with him actually yeah, i mean not just with him. him there was like Watching a dozen him. of us at the thing oh man he's, he's saying wow. he's a good singer what, but how did that come about because the guy who on the network was friends with a friend and you know it was like a usaid guy some i mean when i was living in <laughs> afghanistan like i was i was living in Afghanistan, I wasn't on like a compound or like a U.S. base. Like it was, uh, it was, yeah. it was fun. Wow. So you know the neighborhood where yeah. Zawahiri was killed, which was like, like what, like a couple blocks from the former American embassy. I mean, it was like right in the middle of town. Uh, I right? mean, it was it was decently downtown. It was near Spinney's, which was the you know one of the two grocery stores. Finest was the other one that was a little bit better mm-hmm. and a little bit closer mm-hmm. to where we lived. You were trying to open a third one, weren't you? I mean, there are opportunities for expansion. We're in Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and, and soon to be, uh, you know, Panshir yeah. Valley and Bamiyan. Yeah. 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 We are the only grocery store in Kurdistan. It's not a country, but we have a store there. That's how your political network propagates is when people That's are right. shopping at your grocery store. That's so. right. That's yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I just want to, I think that you should write a TV show and the opening scene should be you 
in the guy who doesn't speak any common language but sings beautifully sitting on like some dilapidated old couch in Kabul. And where it goes from there is, is anybody's wow. guess, but it's a great open, I would say. <laughs> I think we've solved the career uh, problem right there. I'll write it with you. I will, uh, I will write it with you. I will work on a draft tonight. What should we call it? Anybody have any ideas? Our listeners certainly, certainly will. Uh, what's the, uh, the 2022 version of Chico and the Man? Oh, yeah. wow. BJ and the Bear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, this is kind of like Cannonball Run, but a little bit uh, Porky's, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that, that accent, by the way, is like Robert Schmeichel and not Afghan, so you can't Porky's. cancel that, that because I don't even know what that sounds like. But yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Whatever happened to, um, what's his name? Um, uh, Hamid Karzai, whose brother owned the restaurant in Baltimore. Karzai's there. Do you remember Karzai's that? Karzai's in Kabul right now. Is he yeah, still there? Yeah, okay. So he's just, yeah. I mean, the Taliban are like talking to him. I mean, he just kind of does his own thing. Um, Abdullah Abdullah, who is the uh, second, I mean, they had, I forget all these titles. There was a unity government. It was really weird. Um, you know, he's still there. Uh, that was the weird, I mean, like the Taliban took power and they didn't exactly round up people and like execute them in soccer stadiums. It was just like, you know, there were warlords they captured and put under house arrest and then. They just like escaped um, out of like, you know, mercy and yeah. you know, helped them steamroll the country because, you know, they weren't the vengeful, fearful things that everybody thought. Uh, that was a that was a thing that motivated people after 9-11. There was a group called uh, Rawa, mm -hmm. R-A-W-A. Do you remember that? It was, a, it was like Radical Afghan Women's mm -hmm. Association or something. It was like a, like, a, like a proper feminist group, not in the sense of like feminism for Afghanistan, but they were like you know, pretty hardcore. And they came, they were the ones that smuggled out those videos of uh, the women in burqas uh, being executed in the soccer stadium who were, you know, kneeling down. I remember watching those mm -hmm. for the first time and realizing what sort of level of evil we were up against when it, I mean, because that was 2000, that was um, October 2001. I remember those videos coming out and I remember saving them because they were so horrible and sending them to people. Because um, that was, I mean, that was the motivating time. That's, you know, that's the Jake... Uh, I mean, Jake, we're, we were just um, talking about Jake Siegel, who uh, joined up, I think, uh, that month, maybe, or the month after. Um, and I remember the number of people that were doing that. So when people talk about that time, I try to impress upon them that it's something you can't really um, talk about without, you know, really thinking it through. And if, if you weren't actually there, because the number of people who were just like, you know, soft Chomskyites that were, you know, um, thrown on the uniform and saying, you know, I'm going to be Pat Tillman kind of thing. Um, that was pretty intense, and especially in New York. Um, and so, yeah, that Afga I mean, Afghanistan from then, when somebody said the other day that it was 21 years ago, I was like, it made me, it made me shiver because I was like, good mm -hmm. Lord. I do remember it like yesterday, and that actually d changed my life pretty substantially, but not in the military ways. That's when I started like, okay, I'm going to do the journalism thing for but, real but, and stop doing all the other But, nonsense. I mean, you, you mentioned that reaction in that moment. I mean, what, what, mm -hmm. where our society is right now, what do you think that reaction would be? Right. Would the, the Chomsky guys be like, oh, you know, the uh, Taliban have a good point. Right. Or, well, they, they were that, they were that way after 9-11. <laughs> but there was a few people. Very that, much yeah. Bro. I mean, that was the very day I was I've told the story before, but I was in a I was in South Williamsburg. And I, you know, right when the second tower came down, you could see right across the river. And there was a Mexican restaurant on uh, Bedford and South Second or something long, long gone. And I was inside there and everyone was panicking and the TV was on. And there was an Irish guy in there who told me that, you know, it's like, you know, you guys have this coming. I mean, that's basically what he said. 
And I was, I had to be like restrained because I was like, I'm going to tear your fucking face off. And I was like, I was so angry. And that kind of set the tone for everything after that because that was what I got from everybody uh, for so long. So I soon thereafter moved to Sweden and that was that times, it was just that with a different accent, but it was everywhere. But I think right now if something, you know, catastrophic happens in America, I don't even know. I didn't even know how to predict that because... We do have these, I mean, the fact that we have so much violence in this country and nobody notices anyway, mm-hmm. I wonder if there would be, I mean, I, there's actual terror attacks that are, you know, Islamist in nature that have, people have completely forgotten about. They don't even, you know, don't even know existed. So I wonder, I mean, the, you know, the one at the, at, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, who was the, the Muslim guy that shot up the base? And I can't remember. I can't believe it. I'm proving yeah, my own the, point. The, by the not Saudi. His name. Um, it was like the. It was uh, like a, an exchange. One, mm, or the the, the Fort no, Hood soldier. No, it was soldier. the the Fort Hood guy. Uh, what the hell was his name? Yeah, that stuff is like completely been memory hold. Um, I don't think it's deliberate at all. I think there was an exhaustion at a certain point of this stuff. But all of those people in D.C. who are now kind of Trumpy people who made their living <clears throat> being like the anti-Islamist faction. The people that had the actual, you know, the foundation for the defense of democracies, think tanks, and, you know, um, you know, Frank Gaffney and these people that have totally disappeared. Totally disappeared. Gaffney's still around. I mean, it was an industry. Well, he's around, but nobody pays attention to him. He doesn't show up on Fox News. One thing I was noticing. He was at the Capitol Hill Club not too long ago. I was noticing today. Really? Jesus Christ. Wow. I guess Um, nobody's listening. So... Victor Orban is uh, speaking at CPAC this week, and I wrote a piece for a reason about it. And in doing so, was, was trying to read even like one tenth of the amount of verbiage that Rod Dreher has written about Victor Orban, even this week at the American mm-hmm. Conservative. And um, it's interesting because these people, sort of the like the trad cons or whatever you might call them, now the sort of the post-Trump or mid-Trump conservatives who've gone pretty anti-interventionist in ways that I think is pretty interesting. And part of it to me, to me is pretty heartening. Other parts are strange. Um, but I, I, you know, did a quick uh, search because I kind of forgot where Rod was at. And of course, like every conservative in the country, except for five who were condemned in the National Review, um, uh, he was very enthusiastically for the Iraq war and then like stopped being so maybe in 2005 or six or something like that. Um, and it's interesting to watch them go to this uh, level of of kind of getting on the other side of it right now um, and then trying to wrap their heads around it in a way where it still makes uh, sense. And it's it's very difficult um, because it's not as cut and dried as I made a judgment and it was wrong. It is I'm now supporting people who have a pretty like um, straight ahead Putin-esque mm-hmm. interpretation of the entire world. Um, that uh, that the only reason, the reason, uh, as Orban said in the speech that everyone was condemning for other reasons, the only reason Russia invaded Ukraine was because NATO screwed up. NATO didn't give them the, the you know a, a security guarantee to Russia um, that Ukraine would never join it. Um, very specifically like this, and this is this has nothing to do with where those people's minds were at in 2001, two, three, four, and five. Um, but they made this this grand journey in this process. I think that there is something that was so profound about those two towers going down, that plane going down, and the Pentagon being breached. We don't. Like, 
it's our, our it, it's too big for us to process. You can almost process, you know, what happened in what was it Riverside in mm-hmm. 2014, um, both Donald or two thousand yeah 2014 15, uh, yeah. or 15 when Trump and Hillary Clinton both said we need to shut down Facebook. Um, uh, to stop uh, spreading all of this, we can we can kind of think about that. When things are so big, um, I think it scrambles everything that got there at that point. And I think that would happen now uh, in a similar way. Like you know, it's been 21 years. You know, Thomas Massey is always saying like if the Afghanistan war is now old enough to vote and drink and all this kind of stuff. Um, and he's right about that. It's weird. It lasted forever and long beyond people's memories of it. Uh, and in the similar way that we see so much other policy right now um, is is based on not learning or not even just remembering how things went, like economic policy in the 70s, um, I think that would be a play here if Afghanistan happened again. Not Afghanistan, but if the 9-11 happened again. It's just so big. People are dazzled by the thing in the moment, and they would their brains would scramble. They go that way. I don't think that it's it's like we're so polarized that we would react immediately with the same polarization somehow. That's my quick, quick point on a quick point on that. You know who won this debate? Actually, it's funny when you see the so Robs and you know somebody who is like a hardcore neoconservative and worked for commentary and was you know trumpeting the green revolution. You know because you know, he was born in Iran and saying that these these uh, fetid dictatorships must be overturned. Where all these people end up. Um, it was actually predicted um, pretty expertly, in a way, by the loathsome Dinesh D'Souza in 2007. You'll remember that he wrote a book called The Enemy at Home, in which the subtitle yep. was something about how the left was responsible for 9-11. It was denounced by a lot of conservatives, but the argument is not too different than what you get today, you know, with the drag queen story mm. hour sort of thing, that the actual enemy that we're fighting is the one of cultural social liberalism or cultural yeah. Marxism that people say, social perversion, whatever they want to call it. And the people who oppose that, um, if they have, um, you know, long beards that they dye orange, have a point is basically the, the, the book that, I mean, it was roundly, you know, condemned by, I remember National Review writing a piece saying this is, this is disgusting, and a lot of other people. Um, and it was very much like a Chomskyite kind of thing, like we had it coming, and then it kind of ends yep. up where we are now. And it's, it's, it, there's always that instinct in people when it comes to things like foreign policy to say, we should see this through the prism of everything we hate about domestic policy in America. And that's probably where they think about us too, and they don't have, they're not too far off. And the Putin thing is where, you know, you always see this, is that they will excuse one of the most loathsome, disgusting uh, foreign policy actions by a major power in, in you know, recent times, uh, the invasion of Ukraine and the monster that has been, has turned that country into an actual dictatorship. It's just simply a dictatorship. And, you know, people like Rod Dreher, I'm, I'm actually shouldn't say Rod, I don't know if he's taken this, but there are a lot of people that you know, look at Alexander Dugin and all of these so-called Putinist philosophers and say, well, you know, they're very good about the church. That's why they're not Soviet, because the Soviets, um, you know, had a bad policy towards the church. They really love the church. And, you know, I mean, even Stephen F. Cohen, leftist Stephen F. Cohen, married to Katrina Vanden Heuvel, the editor of The Nation, was their Russia person, told me in an interview um, which I will post sometime where he, and it actually might be a copy of it out there, in which he defended the arrest of Pussy Riot for desecrating a church. And I was like, you are the, you are the foreign policy editor, whatever the hell you were, of The Nation magazine. You were finding this because you have this old love affair 
with the Soviet Union being the bulwark against American imperialism. And then you have the guys on the right who say, well, they, they, they say the right things about wokeness, and that's you know Viktor Orban or Putin, and they hate, there's no drag queen story hour in Russia. It's like literally children being blown up by Russian bombs. But thank God, some seven-year-old didn't see a man dressed as a woman singing a Diana Ross song, because that would be much worse than the cluster bomb that killed the entire family. I mean, it's absolute madness, but it is like, I think that the first person that did that from, you know, in a major way was Dinesh D'Souza. We should give him credit for yep. being such a piece of shit. <laughs> I thought you were going to say pioneer. Pioneer. Well, he's a pioneering piece of shit. Yeah, yeah that's right. We can add that word in there, too. <laughs> anyway. We should let we should this let Peter go. go. Yeah. No, I want to talk more about Dinesh D'Souza, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen Are you 2,000 what? Mules? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I haven't. Should I watch it? I know it's going to be hilarious. <sighs> Cell phone data means it was stolen. Are you going to settle some scores? Are you going to have a red wedding? You got you got a couple months left after you're, you know, uh, hanging out at a beach, smoking your hefty bag. <laughs> uh, you're going to like come back. You said that not right. him. That's not right. A new story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't deny uh, it though. He could have. Uh, hanging out in East Day. I'm actually pretty pro legalizing <laughs> marijuana. I just I've never really smoked it. I, 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 you yeah. mean you didn't People inhale? Like We've heard that before. Don't start. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. Yeah, we'll get we'll get you up here and for the for the film festival of uh, Song of the South, and we'll just do huge bong hits. And until that's you not pass the out. only movie. And then we'll ask you a yeah. series of questions about Marjorie Taylor Greene. The and only film movie it. we'll watch. Yeah, I don't know what yeah. else is on the agenda. Yeah, I know we're walking to watch Birth of a Nation. Too. <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it was the harder they come. I thought that's what the other film was going to be. Yes, yeah. it actually okay. was. The Jimmy it's Cliff, a great, yeah. great movie. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is a great movie. I have it too. So. No. Thank right, you, Peter, we'll you go. But are you are you going to go out guns a blazing? What are you going to do? Like, are you going to settle some scores? Are you going to are you going to like do some crimes? The probably not going to do some crimes. That's not uh, the side of the cards. <laughs> um, I still have never gotten a parking ticket. Or no, sorry, I've gotten a lot of parking tickets. I've never gotten a speeding ticket or moving violation. So I try to keep my nose clean there. Um, no, I mean I think the yeah score settling. We'll see. I got to figure out what what to drop where and. What to leverage? Yeah, just got to. Who deserves exactly? It exactly. Yeah. I'm just saying. And the answer there, Matt, is yeah. stay tuned. If some hero, if some yeah. hero yeah. were to leak the classified <laughs> UFO documents, I wouldn't be mad. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. Not all heroes wear capes. That's all I'm saying. You can you can tell so much about a person in what they want declassified. It's important. The Kennedy assassination. Listen, Here's is the listen, UFO stuff. If yeah. if it's yeah. a thing. Yeah. It's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Can we agree on that, sir? It's, it turns out it's not. <laughs> There's been some people who say, I've seen it. Actually, it's not as interesting as people think yeah. it is. You know, well, I'm waiting until the congressman comes back because he's the only one I can trust down there. I, I would rather get our, our society and government to a point where if that was leaked, it wouldn't result in, mm -hmm. you know, half of the country worshiping, you know, the little green men, <laughs> which you know they're ready for. Yeah, it, it's a kind of state called this, right? Like up on the roof, you know, all the folks, mm -hmm. I mean, except it won't be like two dozen people in L.A., it would be, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. at I, least 40% I think we probably have, party or the other. You're saying cocoon. <laughs> I think we would have more of a don't look up situation. People would ignore it until the invasion happened, and then we would get wiped out. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You have that to look forward to. That sounds okay. Yeah, yeah just nice. Yeah. Right. On that note. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Congressman. Oh, 
I, I just want to thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for, uh, Thanks, for, man. for being there and for supporting this fine podcast, but also for all of your, your faithful work and, uh, yeah, you'll come back soon and talk to us thank and you. we won't, we won't oh, talk yeah, about well, any of this shittiness again. Well, and, and I, I appreciate your only endorsement of the 2022 midterm cycle to date being in my corner. That's um, right. I, I I think it, it it pushed me from losing by five points to only losing by three and a half. So I'm you know, deeply grateful. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I'd done something a little sooner, so you could have got that that fifth fifth column bump. And you know, honestly, I, I will admit, uh, I'll just be totally honest with you. I do regret giving your opponent six hundred dollars. <laughs> um, it was a random amount. Um, I was drunk. I thought it'd be funny. Um, we have a few things in common, particularly when it comes to the news. And I just thought maybe it would be it'd be like. I thought you'd laugh about it because I thought you were going to win. Now you lost, and I feel a sense of responsibility. Sorry, Peter. Hey, it was your money, but I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I'm going to ask for it back. Oh, man. Because right. he's a racist. So thank you, sir. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.